Welcome to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Minisport, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967. And we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley-Davidson's, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. This week, my guest is a young person. Yes, for the first time, not a woman. <laughs> Come on, love to have a woman on the show. If anybody's got any suggestions, contact me through the Facebook page. Uh, they've got to be interesting, though, and they've got to, you know, they've got to be into cars and motorbikes. Um, Sam Skelton isn't yet 30, but when I met him a few years ago, I felt like he'd been born middle-aged. He's tasting cars. He's very similar to my own for some reason. So I expect lots of talk about uh, supercharged Jags, big Citroens and Triumph Stags. Great guest. Not even 30, 29, Sam Skelton. When I'm putting the show together and looking for guests, I often get suggestions um, for people who I will never name because, you know, that would be, uh, that would be rude. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah, that person is quite well known. Um, but I don't think they've got an hour in them. And I know, because there are all sorts of people, celebrities, who they'll say, oh, yeah, he's really into cars. And you think, no, he isn't. And the answer to everything that he will ever say is Subaru or MGB. Subaru or MGB. Well, with celebrities, it's generally something ridiculously fast that's going to get them into trouble. I'll tell you you a celebrity story. Um, and it's in the public domain because he had a terrible accident. I'm not saying that the terrible accident, he broke his pelvis, which is not death, obviously, but... Um, but it's fairly terrible. Oh, it's, ri- I mean, oh, it's I, super I wouldn't, terrible. I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to have a broken pelvis. No, 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 no. And it was the guy who's the rapper in Faithless, the uh, popular dance music forward, forward slash electronic uh, act who probably peaked at some time in the 90s. I think you'd agree, wouldn't you, Sam? I would say that's probably not far off. Yeah, I think they've, uh, I think they've released new music. The, the, the head bloke is uh, Dido's brother, you know. Didn't know that. Yeah, you know Dido, the super mm. successful, and he's called Rollo. So I think they must have been fair. It's fairly posh. It's always, it's always interesting, isn't it, in the car hobby, as I think we're encouraged to say. When you encounter someone who's got a suit like you're Sam, I'm Steve, and you know fairly ordinary lads, uh, you, you encounter a lot of biffs and a lot of toppers as well, don't you? I, I met Tarquin yesterday, <laughs> and a couple of days ago a Saul, and it's like you think, ah, oh, yeah, you probably uh, come from a different background. You, I think you could still, you could still do that, can't you? You could still, if you, if they say. If somebody says to you, oh, you know that gearbox guy I told you about? I've got his number for you. And you go, what's he called? And they go, Colin, Derek, Brian. You can you know pitch, boy. You yeah. can picture the guy in your head, can't you? When they say Colin, you think, yeah, Colin's probably mid-50s to mid-60s. And I would imagine knows what he's doing after all this time. If this... Derek is wearing a brown store coat. <laughs> You instantly know that from the name Derek. Derek's used to be the only people, apart from people who've been in prison, who smoke roll-up cigarettes. Yeah, yeah, I don't think you're old enough to remember that. There used to be a shop in, uh, I think he was called Brian. There used to be a motorbike shop in Bury, my hometown. And the guy who worked in it was straight from Central Casting. Even in the early 80s, when we started patronising his, his establishment, he was... Stuck in the 50s. You went in the shop, and on the wall, there was a clock that said, it's BSA time. And it really wasn't BSA time in the, in the early 80s. It hadn't been BSA time for a long time. And, of course, the clock itself had stopped at some point in the proceedings, but he just left it there. You know, he hadn't, he hadn't bothered Probably to Probably in 1962, it. and he hadn't seen any point in evolving since. Yeah, and he would come out, he'd come out the back and he'd, he'd, he'd say two things. He'd say, you want to get to the Dragon Rally, you lads? 
Now, you wouldn't know what the Dragon Rally is because you're not a motorcycle man, but the Dragon Rally is a, a motorcycle rally that you, that takes place in Wales, hence the Dragon Rally. There was a clue in the name. Um, in the dead of winter. And um, he'd say, you want to get to the Dragon Rally, you lads? And we'd... <laughs> When we asked him what it was, we were sort of young, mod revival lads in parkas and two-toned shoes that we'd bought from the back pages of and the... And one NM- step above driving a Vespa. Well, we were on Vespas. That's, that's why we went to his shop, because he had, from back in the day, i.e. the 60s, a stock of Vespa parts, which we would hope to plunder. He was one of those guys as well who has sat on this stock of parts thinking that one day somebody's going to want them. And then one day comes a, a young man come into his shop and go, um, have you got um, a stage play? Have you got a... You know, have you got and a- I bet he doesn't know how to react because he's expecting people of his generation suddenly to want them. And it's these young lads are coming in asking for him. Yeah, that did, that did throw him a little bit. That did throw him a little bit. But he soon switched on to miser mode <laughs> and would say... He'd, he'd suck on his roll-up cigarette, as I think I mentioned, and he'd go, thoughtfully, he'd suck on it, he'd go, I don't know whether, uh, I don't know whether I should let you have that, because uh, they're very rare. And then, he, then he'd tap his pipe, or whatever, he smoked a pipe as well, tap his pipe on the count, wooden counter and go, very rare. Like that, and you'd think, <laughs> you'd think, all he was doing was, like, building up to asking a ridiculous amount of money for something which, in all likelihood, unless The Who had released the movie Quadrophenia... No-one else had won. Forever. He, he, he would have passed away, as he did. Uh, and they'd all be sat there, and yeah. his widow would have to go through them all and go, right, who's going to give me his hem bob for this? Exactly. How many, how many on the car side of it, on the classic... Oh, and the other thing that he used to say was... So he used to say, you want to get to the Dragon Rally? And the other thing he'd say when he came out the back of his shop, because he was never in, there was never anybody in the shop. He was always in the workshop. One of those guys is in the workshop. And when you go in to buy something, like a clutch cable or a, you know... You have to wait st- five minutes for him to finish what he's doing before he'll come and serve you. Yes, and then when he deigns to serve you, it's like he's annoyed because you've interrupted what he was doing. It's a shop! <laughs> I, I wanted to say, mate, it's a shop! Right? How dare you come and give me some money? Stop acting all peed off when somebody comes in, the, the bell rings, the clock says it's BSA time and it's not. And then well, I w- you have to wonder, really, whether there was really a workshop back there or whether he just cultivated it as part of his image. No, it was a myth and he was trying to get people through the door and go, hey, look at this bloke. You'll never find anyone like him now. He's a right throwback. You ought to go and buy some off him. No, Sam. Maybe it was all just a marketing strategy. No, Sam. It was one of those shops... And there are classic car forward slash classic bike dealerships all over the world where this happens. There comes a day when he decides you can come back in the workshop. And that is a great day. That is, it's like I'd been going in there, John Redford's, I've been going in there for years. And I, I'd never, never presumed to my own. Vespa was in there having something done to it. I'd never presumed to go back into the workshop. That was his domain. You're joking. You didn't go up. What you would have had to duck under the counter. One day he lifted up. You know the the, the counter, the bit of the counter yeah. that lifts up. He said, "You better come back here like this." And I thought, "Yes, you've I've, made it at that point." Well, yeah. Well, there's some uh, there's some guys where you never you never get to there with them, do you? You, you go there for years, you give them, in some instances, thousands of pounds <laughs> over the years. But they'll go, hold on a minute. It's almost like you, you sort of decide eventually that you really ought to be allowed in the workshop to see your own vehicle or whatever's happening to it. And it's and the hand comes up and it's like, no, no, no. Don't presume to come back here. And I think some people think, oh, yeah, it's because they're up to dodgy stuff. And it's not. It's just because... That's their place, isn't it? A lot. Of, it's, it might be a British thing, but I think a lot of guys in the classic business have the attitude that it's it's kind of it's their toy and it's their ball and they're letting you play with it, even though you're paying for the ball. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I have to say, as charming as places like that are, I tend to give them short shrift, partly because as a writer, I like to 
get a grip and photographs of what's being done. And partly because often a second pair of hands back there can be useful. Oh, yeah. If I take something to a specialist, I mean, I do a lot of my own stuff, but if ever something goes to a specialist, I go fully expecting to muck in at some point. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I was a boy, but I'm past that now. If somebody said to me, oh, no, no, I'd be like, right, well, if you don't want me back there, then I don't want my vehicle. It's not like, you know, I wouldn't go into a, a Ford dealership or a Nissan dealership and expect to go back into the... I don't want to go back into the workshop. They're going to no, be playing... No, then again, you wouldn't take anything there in the first place, would you? Well, well, as you know, <laughs> as you're fully aware, I'm a man who thinks that uh, an early 90s car is ridiculously modern. <laughs> well, as you know, most of my fleet is from the early to mid-90s. I don't often do any... Well... I do sometimes have newer stuff, but it's rare for me to have anything that was launched after about 95. Yeah, because those cars, the interesting cars of that period, are, for your generation, they're classics, aren't they? I think... Well, they are. I mean, yeah. for someone of your generation, me tooling around in something like my E-Class Merc as an everyday car is no different to you tooling around in something like an early P6. Yeah, yeah, it's a car that, as a a young, as a boy, that you admired and, and, and looked at and, and read about in your father or your grandfather's motor magazines. Or like me, I you have went... to admit that a W two ten was never a poster car for me. I bought it because it was cheap and it was comfortable. Yeah, but I... <laughs> and I've fallen for it since. <laughs> oh, we've talked about that quite a lot on the show. Cars that you. Uh, that's me and my Toyota Carina E, where it was, I got it, I got it in a deal, it was part X, I ended up with this Carina E, I just put it to one side and thought, right, I'll advertise that within the next couple of days. Not only did I not advertise it and sell it within the next you couple of days. charm in it as well. I just couldn't deny its essential excellence in, in terms of how it was built and the way that it went about its business. The it Japanese was... and German cars are good for that, aren't they? <laughs> they're, not cars, they're not cars that you ever buy with your heart, unless it's something really special and often sporting. The cars you buy with your head, and then when you've bought them, you realise that actually life without them would be a little bit silly. Sam, I had a Seat. I can't even remember which model it was. I think it was a Seat Leon. It was the five-cylinder 2.3. I know that, the engine. It was a good engine, because it was an Audi engine. <laughs> it might have been a Toledo, then, because I don't uh, think they put that in the Leon, did they? I don't... Here's the thing. I don't know which model it was. I don't want to know which model it was. Again, I had it for about 18 months. When I went to sell it, I realised how much I'd driven it because of the difference between <laughs> the miles that were on it and um, my the then Mrs Berry... Uh, had driven it, we'd used it loads. And, and the maintenance had consisted of, in all the time we'd had it, the maintenance consisted of putting a part-worn front tyre on it because one of them had started to look pretty illegal. And obviously, you know, you don't want to have a horrible accident or get three points on your driving licence should, you uh, should you encounter the authorities in some sort of roadside stop. But, um, yeah, no love for it, but... but admiration and sort of respect, yeah? I absolutely get that. There's one car that I've sold, and I've had now, again, on 37, 38 cars. That's a lot of cars for a man of your age. It is. I'm sorry to keep banging on about it, but you are the youngest person we've ever had on Speed Shop. Well, I'm 29. Have you ever had anyone younger than that? We've we've barely had anybody in the 40s, to be honest. But you're an old soul. I remember when I first met you a few years ago, and I thought you had a sort of you reminded well, you reminded me of James May basically, who I know, you know, or did know. I'm spoken to him for years, but you know, we worked together a bit back in the day, and I thought, wow, he's like a sort of young James May, and, and you're tasting cars. Although James's taste has evolved over the years with his bank balance, now that he's not quite as rich as Clarkson because nobody's as rich as Clarkson, maybe Lewis Hamilton. But, you know, now, now that he can afford whatever he likes, he's bought a lot of cars that aren't very James May, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I absolutely get what you mean, but sometimes the cars that people don't think are very you are cars that almost you fall for more than anything else. Yeah, but I, 
here's the deal. I don't think, no matter how much money you had, you would ever buy, for instance, something that he's had, a Ferrari. I don't think you'd ever buy one, ever, no matter how much money you had. Maybe a 400 GT. Oh, there you go. But it'd have to be automatic. <laughs> I, recently, I recently read a piece uh, about the 400. As what, It was kind of one of those unloved Ferraris. Cause it, I'm be, sure they're dreadful, but the thing is, to me, a Ferrari is a big V12 GT car. There's nothing sporty about it. No. But, uh, and and there's the history of motoring journalism. Do you, do you collect old motoring magazines? I sort of do. I'm in my office at the moment looking at probably the thick end of 1,500, 2,000 of the things. Wow. Right. <laughs> so the answer is yes, you do. Yeah. Do you want any old 60s motor, <laughs> any 60s auto car, any 70s and 80s auto car and motor? I'm trying to shift half of them. Well, the number, of, the number of people who on social media, again, mainly men of my generation, Sam. Well, actually, I'm going to do a shameless plug now. If anyone who's listening to this wants any 70s or 80s <laughs> copies of auto car and motor, please get in touch with Stephen. I'm sure he'll pass it on. Well, the, you see the post on social media. Um Come on, somebody take these off my hands, or they're going to the tip, and it's a giant, giant stack. I've been been trying to sell close on 800 of mine for about 18 months, because realistically they're in the way. I've had these ones for about five years. I haven't so much as catalogued them yet, so it's obvious I'm never going to need them. I'd rather they go to someone who's going to use them and enjoy them, but I can't bear the thought of something like that that's lasted so long going in the skip. Yeah, and and as a writer, and knowing how hard it is to write, because it is hard. I've, I've never met any. I've never met anyone who was any good at writing. Whoever said it was easy, I've met people who said it was easy, and that's because they were rubbish, <laughs> <laughs> and they just like went blah, 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 like threw it down. No difference. Yeah, I mean you can you can write easy things to write. For instance, I'm fairly sure that someone like you or I could churn out a buying guide for an MGB in about half an hour. But they're not the ones that bring us real pleasure when we do it, and they're not the ones we put our hearts and souls into. The ones that we really enjoy, the ones that we look back on and we think, yes, that was good, we agonise over them. We take days over them. We go back and we change the position of commas because we think the comma might be in the wrong place, and then three days later we put it back where it was. That's the difference. Yeah. Um, I reread all the old stuff and, and delight in the... Uh, I'm reading... Uh, at the moment, I was... Uh, well, as I say at the moment, at breakfast today, I was reading a 1993 issue of Car Magazine. And it was it was the classic lineup. It was like Bulgin, Setright... Gavin Green, all them lot. Which issue? I've probably got it. It's that one with the hundred cars that you must drive before you die. Yes, I've got that. Yeah, it's, yeah. Probably, it's barely out of arm's reach. In fact, I can see the pile of magazines that that one's on. It's because it was. I agreed with so much of what they said. Obviously, a lot of cars have been built since then because it's twenty-seven years ago, but. They, they they had a, the most disappointing car section as well, as well as the 100 that you had to drive, and it was kind of round up the usual suspects. There was a disappointing section, and in there was... And you, I'll, tell you, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one that you will vehemently disagree with, and a couple that you might agree with. In there was the VW Carmen Gear. We were talking about how disappointing it, a car it is to drive only a couple of weeks ago on the show. And I thought, yeah. I agree. I absolutely agree. I've never, ever seen the appeal in air-cooled Volkswagens. Well, the problem... I'm I'm aware that I'm probably going to be taken from my house and lynched by several readers for saying that, but I really don't see the joy in them. Why would you have one when you could have a Fiat 500 or a 2CV? Yeah, but the, the difference between... You're not disappointed when you drive a Beetle because you don't expect it to have any sporting uh, potential at all. And, of course, it just... The thing. It doesn't have to be sporting to derive joy from it, and I just don't with the Echo Volkswagen. Yeah, but the Carmen Gear... Because it makes you smile. The Carmen Gear promises a lot more than it can deliver. I, I've told this story before. I'll tell it again. We're watching the... Um, 
I, about a week before I went to see my missus uh, the last time, this is about a year ago, maybe a bit longer, maybe more like 18 months ago, she was in Vancouver. Was it Vancouver? Toronto. She was in Canada. <laughs> somewhere in Canada. That's yeah, close enough. somewhere in Canada. You know, it's the second largest country in the world. But, yeah, she was somewhere in Canada. And um, I'd bought this Carmen gear... And then we went over there, and the day I got there, we went to see the Quentin Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And the opening sequence, Brad Pitt drives a Carmen Gear. I think it's a convertible, and I bought a convertible. And he drives his Carmen Gear. And she recognised the car. She was like, that's the car you just bought. And, of course, I'd also just sold it. I, I, I owned the car. And last year was the shortest time you've owned the car. I owned the car for about three hours, because I bought it, took a picture of it on the back of the low loader that we'd had to go and collect it with, and said, hey, look what I've just got. And somebody messaged me and said, I have to have that car. And I didn't even take it off the off the low loader. I just sent the delivery guy to, to this guy's house. <laughs> I just said, take it to this guy. <laughs> so, That's far less than me, far less than me. Is it? Um, yeah, I've, I don't think I've ever owned a car for hours. Um, I've owned... What's my worst? Now, I think the shortest I've had a car was probably... A day? No, it would have been that one, no. A About week? A month. About a month. About a month. Oh, actually, was it? Now, you see, this one's a difficult one, because would you count a car that I've owned for just over a month, but only had him in possession for nine days, ah. or would you count one that I'd had and sold within about three weeks. Yeah, because... This Which one would you say I'd had least? I don't know. The status of a vehicle... I, I know of two friends of mine jointly own two cars. And I when I found that out, because I didn't know, because I said, oh, I saw a picture of uh, so-and-so, and he was in the blah blah I won't say what it is, because, you know, they might they might not want it to be general knowledge. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we've joint, jointly owned that car for over 20 years now. Hmm. I said, well, I just, you know, he's a good friend. So I said, well, how does that work? Does that, is this, you know, what if something goes wrong with it? Does the person who wasn't driving it not get the right on when they, the, the phone rings? I've got a bit of bad news. <laughs> because it's an old, they're old cars, the two cars. The two cars that they've jointly owned are both at least 40 years old, one possibly, one at least 50 years old. And the thing about old cars is they break. You know that. I know that. They break. That's the one. They rust and they break. Well, all I can say is from my experience, and that is that anything that you jointly own can't be something that you care so much about that you're bothered if it's temporarily broken. That's why exotic car rental businesses never work. I, I was thinking I drove past a hotel in Manchester yesterday, and I thought, oh yeah, that's that place where we did the intro for the for the film that we made for that for that guy. And this was a guy that had started one of those businesses. This must have been about seven or eight years ago, and he had all the exotic cars of the day. And he just called me out of the blue. He got my number of somebody else. He said, listen, I've started this exotic car hire business. Uh, I've got this, I've got that, and it was all the right. It was all the right names. It was, you know, it was McLaren, it was Ferrari, it was Lamborghini, it was Aston Martin, it was Porsche. It was all the right names. And he said, uh, "I wonder if you'd present um, the instructional video that people will see on our website." Hi, welcome to Bloody Blah. I'm Steve Berry. You might remember me from such TV shows as. Well, Top Gear, you know, hold uh, on, Top Gear reference, 25 minutes and seven seconds. Are you usually in the first half of the show? So it, it was just in it. But anyway, so I thought, I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, just do that and drive the cars. I went, great. So we spent three days uh, and I got paid to drive, to drive all these cars. And I remember thinking, what a nice guy. What a nice bunch of people working for him. What a great collection of cars. This won't work. And it didn't. Because of what you just said, if people don't own it, they don't respect it. Hmm. There's, well, it's a truth universally acknowledged, as <laughs> I'm sure you've heard, that there is nothing that's faster than a rental. And I would imagine that a rental Ferrari is probably the top of the list. Yeah, I think as well, people get giddy. 
they get giddy if they're not used. It's not so much the power. I think people think it's the power, but it's just the whole experience. I mean, what was the first car that you drove that intimidated you, Sam? And I don't, I don't mean in terms of the amount of power and performance. I just, I just mean the key ring with the badge, and then you got in it and you sat in the seat and you thought, "Oh my God, I'm driving a." What was it? You like this. Go on. I can guarantee you like this. And I drove it on the same day as the Carmen Gear, which is possibly why the Carmen Gear disappointed me so much. But it was an SM. A Citroen SM. Wow. Yeah. I remember when the only people who liked Citroen SMs were me and Martin Buckley. It was also <laughs> the first hydro-pneumatic Citroen I'd ever driven. Oh, you've got to be kidding, so. Nope. Really? The hydro-pneumatic Citroen I've ever driven was an SM. A week later, I drove a DS. <laughs> and since then, I've owned, let's see, three Zantias. I'm on the cusp of getting my second CX, and I borrowed a CX briefly. I've also had the XM. So that's seven I've had. Wow. Well, you, I was going to say, you won't like one of uh, Car Magazine from 27 years ago's um, Cars That Disappoint list. The XM, the Citroen XM was on the list. I thought, now you see, how dare they? You and I are both either XM owners or former XM owners. I've we had... Both, we both know the many, many good points of the car. However... However... <laughs> go on. <laughs> I can see where they're coming from. Oh, Sam. How can, how can you dislike a car? Now, now, bear in mind, I've had my XM for five and a half years, Steve. Wow. I'm not... Someone who is saying that I can see where they're coming from based on 10 minutes driving one round a car park. I do, on the one hand, I utterly adore my XM and it's one of the cars that I am never going to sell. I'm never going to get rid of. It's mine until I die. But picture the scene. You're arriving in 1989 at the Citroen dealer. You're turning up in your CX. Yeah. And you're thinking, I'm going to go and have a look at this nice big new Citroen. And you get in it, and it's got conventional self-cancelling indicators. It's got normal steering. It's not as soft. The seats aren't quite as good. You can't see the passenger mirror properly. It's Because of the quarter light. Yeah, yeah the, the it's way... a very good car, the XM. It's a lovely car. It's a car, like I say, I'm never getting rid of. What's the ideal spec for an XM, Sam? Go on. SED, I yeah. reckon. SED automatic. Well, phase I, one and a half. I'm one of the few people that's had a 24 valve three litre, and I phase didn't... one or two. Was it PRV or an ES9? No, it was the it was the later. It was one of the later cars. And... Now that's the better engine. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't suit the no, car. No, I think so. Doesn't it, suit. It... Doesn't suit the car. The car. I... An XM, an XM should be a turbo diesel, and it should be, I think, an automatic. Now, you see, I very nearly have the right spec. The problem is the fuel that goes into it, because mine's an automatic SE, two-litre turbo petrol. Ah, I've had one of them. It's, it's all right. I mean, I've taken the electronic boost control off and fitted a manual one, because... Frankly, the fact that it was constantly on boost meant that I was getting 27 to the gallon at best, and it wasn't all that quick. Now, <laughs> Don't you just hate a slow car that gets really bad gas mileage? It's like, you wouldn't mind if it was like tearing up the tarmac. But well, you think... see, the other one, and it's a car that I know that you know as well, is the X300 Jag. Yeah. I've had four of those now. I've started out with a 4-litre Sovereign, and I've got an XJR, a 3.2 Sovereign and an Executive that I'm going to be swapping for this CX. And the 3.2 is worse on fuel than the 4-litre, and it's slower. <laughs> it's truly frustrating. That's because it's trying so hard to drag around a car which must be the thick end of a tonne and three quarters. And the diff ratio on them is stupid. They're so low-geared compared to the 4-litres. I, I've never had... I've had... How many of those X300s have I had? Four. And I've only ever had the four... I've had 
the four, three four litres and an XJR? Well, I bought the 3.2 Sovereign when I was looking for a four litre because I got the exec and I thought, I'm enjoying having a non-sporty Jag in my life again, but I'll go looking for a four litre Sovereign because this is a little low spec, it's slow and thirsty. So what I ended up doing was buying a 3.2 long wheelbase, which is heavier and has the same Ooh, slow engine. Yeah. But the thing is, it's the best one I've ever had. You know they all have rattles at the back end. <laughs> if you'll you pardon the expression, yeah. <laughs> this one hasn't. And it's got a load of paperwork with it. It drives, Steve, it drives like a 40,000-mile car. I bought one for a pal who was doing one of these banger rallies. And... I went to collect it from because he said to me, "It's one of the one of those things where somebody leans across and casually asks you something, and you commit to it because it seems forever off, and then all of a sudden there's a week it's to there. go. Yeah. yeah, it's there. So it, it was like a let's say it was Christmas, and we were at a party, and he leaned across from the next table and tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Can you get me a jag for this banger rally?" And I went, "Yeah, yeah, no problem." <laughs> How long have I got? Well, you've got till June, and then suddenly yeah. May. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, it's like the 25th of May, and he's on the phone going, where's this Jag? And you're so, thinking, um, um, yeah. oh, that. Well, I'm thinking ebay.co.uk, and there it was. It was like a powder blue with a, I'm trying to think, like a, a light, no, sort of a mid-tan leather interior, the uh, the Celtic alloys, as oh, I God. I believe they're known. Sorry, I don't like the Celtics at all. I'm, 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 I don't mind them at all. Went to get it, and to give you uh, an indication of how ridiculously underpriced this car was, the the chap who was selling it couldn't bear to be there when I turned up to collect it. His wife said he'd gone out in his van for a drive. And when I saw the condition that the car was in, it was... I'm not saying it was concourse, because it, was very, it wasn't. very, good. Oh, it was very good. It was very good. And I was giving him hundreds of pounds, when what I should have been doing was giving him thousands of pounds. And you bought it blind as well, didn't you? you yes, didn't mate. You see it before you went to... Oh, they're the best on eBay, aren't they? When you buy something blind and it's so much better than you expect it to be. Oh, yeah. Of course, I've had it the other way, but you roll the dice, as my pal Rubin says. You roll the dice. It was, Sam, I had a few days to get this car for a friend. I told him I'd get it in. I told him he. I told him the price. You know, I was making a little bit of money on it. Not a lot, not a lot, because it was very small amount. Buy you a drink, basically. Yeah, but you know, right. I'll tell you what I got out of it. I got a day out. I got to drive on the. I love going on the train. We had a chap on a couple of weeks ago. He was. Um, our first returning guest, very popular, Alec Reed and Whistle. He deals in in exotic cars. He sells Aston Martins. You know the words Ferrari, Aston Martin, Bentley, Rolls Royce trip off his tongue because he's bought and sold hundreds of them. But he is entirely happy to admit that he loves buying sight unseen, going on the train with you know all that sort of stuff, and kind of wondering what the hell he's going to encounter when he gets there, because you never really know, do you? <laughs> but on this occasion, it was a fantastic car. Uh, and I saw the chap, so I delivered it to this... No, I didn't deliver it to his house. He came, he came and got it. His wife drove him over. He couldn't believe how good it looked. He couldn't believe it. He pulled up, he went, it can't be this one. I went, it's this one. Because here was the thing I had. I had an XJ40 at the time, uh, K9 ADP. Where are you now? Uh, K9 ADP got written off in, a, in an accident. Was uh, that the one that was on the motorway? Yeah, the one where I posted the video on social media where... Yeah, I had something very similar happen to me in the Sovereign 24 hours after its first MOT in seven years. Wow. Well, of course, you, you, you know what happened, but people may not know. I was driving on the highway in the northwest near Manchester, and as I found out, a very nice German lady who worked for a shoe company had been up to Preston and was heading back to Manchester Airport, and... That thing happened to her, that happens to so many people who aren't British but are driving on British roads and don't expect it. Like my missus, who's Canadian and hates it. She's stuck in the inside lane 
and the inside lane started to take her off the highway. There are all sorts of places in the world where that never happens. You can drive the length of countries, and if you stay in the outside, in the inside lane and you, you drive steadily, you can go across the whole country. You don't continually, as we do in the UK, get filtered off the highway. So as a consequence, because she thought she was going to be late for a flight, she suddenly... Panicked and changed lanes. Went across three lanes of traffic, causing Mick, the heavy goods driver, to um, take evasive action and actually hit me as I went past him in the fast lane, as some people call it. Well, that's not entirely what happened to me, but the ultimate result was... What happened to me was... Do you remember about 20 years ago there was a whole campaign about drivers of EU-registered left-hand drive lorries on British motorways and about the risk of them pulling out into you Yes, because they hadn't seen you. Of course. I mean, think about it. When you go into Europe, you hire... You drive a left-hand drive vehicle, you go to the States, you drive, you know, you drive a left-hand drive vehicle. But if you're in Britain in a left-hand drive and it's something high up like a lorry, there is a massive blind spot of at the side. Of course there is. That's a truck. And it's it's bad enough in a car. What's it like in a truck? I don't think left-hand drive trucks should be, no, after, especially after Brexit. Why I can't... quite agree. The Sam, problem it's con- that he has, though... Sam, it's containers. Is- they could just take the container off when it leaves Europe... Put it on, the... it on a right-hand drive trailer. Exactly. It's not difficult. No. But the problem that he had was that he was coming up behind another lorry. He indicated, didn't check, hadn't been keeping an eye on his mirror. It didn't occur to him that there was 17 feet of Jaguar next to him. I saw him out the corner of my eye moving across already, slammed my brakes on. And you know how long a long wheelbase X300 is? Yeah. The damage started on the rear wing came across both doors tearing two holes in them, took the mirror off and bent the front of the roof gutter. Wow, that's a big one. And then knocked a fairly sizable hole in the front wing. Well, I was very lucky in that... He didn't notice. He didn't, he didn't notice. Stop. He didn't notice and he didn't stop. The guy I behind me... miles chasing him down the A1... Wow. ...on a hands-free system to 999, waiting for them to intercept him. Wow. I, um. I was lucky in that behind me, I I don't use dash cams. I you know I I I, I don't know why I probably should, but I don't. Uh, and I didn't then. Uh, it's when when did this happen with the, with the with my XJ40? Twenty thirteen, hasn't it? Yeah, it's 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 five or six years ago, and um, there's a guy behind me who was fully dash cammed up because it was his job to um, follow Premiership football players. That was his job. He would follow them because there's been a there there has has been and was then a spate of crimes involving people. I think famously recently one of the Arsenal players was confronted by armed thugs who demanded his hundred thousand pound watch. Here's the thing, you know, should anybody be wearing a hundred thousand? It's wrong that people want to take it off them, but I don't know if if it's a good idea for people to and especially in the sort of part of town that he was in to be going about i don't know may, people should be allowed to do what they like maybe but there are certain things I on was, the one hand we shouldn't curtail freedoms we shouldn't say no. you can't do this but on the other hand people shouldn't in my opinion knowingly how can we put this knowingly walk into danger by doing things that some of the potentially criminal classes would argue is asking for it. Well, yeah. I mean, last night I happened to be driving at about 3.30am through Manchester and was going through one of the roughest neighbourhoods and saw uh, a gentleman not unlike myself jogging, uh, a middle-aged man, one of the locals, jogging through part of town where you wouldn't see too many men like him, and I shouted out the window, keep going, mate, keep going. Because <laughs> was a, I thought, I thought, I thought, it's not like he's going to be able to outrun. He, he was a fairly sturdy chap. And I thought, I thought, I know what he's doing. Because I thought, I always think, like you, if you're a writer, if you're a storyteller, if you're a journalist, whatever, you, you can't help but always think in life, what's the story? And I thought, I better know what's going on here. He's decided he's going to take up running. He's a sturdy chap. 
he doesn't want to be he doesn't want people looking at him so he's come out at 3:30 in the morning 3:30 in the a.m. and he's doing it then because there's, there's no one around who's going to look and there's no one out there who's going to shout out the window run fat boy run the problem is people that's why i don't do it <laughs> the problem is people may intercept him the thing about running and jogging when i i i'm not built for running i'm the wrong shape you know, I'm pretty. I'm pretty much a man for the gym. You know that. I, I like to keep. I like to lift weights Whereas, and you know all that sort of stuff. I would say that I am in fairly good shape. Round does count. <laughs> but when I did run, I used. Do you know what I used to do? I used to drive to the running track and run around the running track, the cinder track, because somebody said to me the worst thing you could do is run on the street. The amount of stress that you put on your ankles and your knees and your well, hips and all that. It's surface, isn't it? It's not designed. To- for running in the same way that a cinder track would be. Well, he said, you live near the, the athletics club, don't you? And I went, yeah. He said, just go and run on the cinder track because it's been specially made and it's got underneath, it's all set up for running. And I was like, yeah. But uh, anyway, if people want to run the street at three at 3.30 of the AM through the roughest part of Manchester, that's up to them. But like a lot of things related to, uh, to cars, it doesn't mean it's a good idea, does it? No. Not in the slightest. Like buying complicated, um, large, gas-guzzling, supercharged cars from the early 90s, like a car that I only sold about a year ago and which you still have, a Jaguar XJR. Do you remember Clarkson's? Have you looked back at Clarkson's original review? It's one of the ravest of rave reviews that he ever gave a car, isn't it? I have, yes. He utterly loved that thing. However... I seem to fly in the face of opinion when it comes to the six-cylinder ones because I actually prefer it as an automatic. Ah. Most six-cylinder XJR people, and there are groups on Facebook for those of us who are sad enough to think that running such a car is a good idea, most of them love the manual. There are people out there who convert automatics to manual. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but no. a 16-and-a-half-foot-long car yeah. that's real Forte's motorways, why does it need a manual gearbox? I don't know. This idea that a manual is always... It, it's one of those. It's, it's the driving glove brigade. They always... <laughs> mind you, I said that. For courses, if you want a manual car, go and buy something that works better as a manual. Go and buy something like the Saab 9000. Yeah. Something that's designed to work with a manual gearbox. And if you've got an XJR, especially if it's the V8, which I prefer... Um, well, you're entitled to your wrong opinion, but there you go. <laughs> 420 horsepower on the dyno, my V8. 420 of your brake horsepowers. Has been, no, hold on a minute. 420 brake horsepowers. A six-cylinder will do 16 less than six seconds. You don't need a car that's quicker than that. Well, I did. <laughs> you got to remember I've come from bikes. i tell you what, right? I have finally seen the light when it comes to cars being quicker than bikes. I never thought I'd see a day. So the car that, for me, has proved the most dramatic car that I've, that I've experienced in a long time and has made me feel that perhaps motorcycles will never be as fast as the fastest cars now are is the Porsche Taycan. It's science fiction fast. It seems... What's the problem with that, Steve? What's the problem? Go on. Well, what are you going to do with it? I remember back in 2016, I drove a pair of F-Types back-to-back. I drove a base 3-litre manual, and I drove an F-Type R. Now, the F-Type, for what it is, very good car. like the F-Type a lot. I've got one. With with the R... I've got a 4-litre. 4-litre F-Type... No, uh, yes, I've got a full interest. <laughs> no, sorry, no, you're mishearing me. I said F, Foxtrot. Oh, F-Type. Oh, the F-Type. Yes, the of course. Car. Yeah, great and car. I, when I was driving the R, I came out of a 30-mile-an-hour limit in a village, and I was approaching a national speed limit. So I did what you do when you're in a quick car. I put my foot down, and then instantly, at the snap of a finger, I was doing 60. Where's the fun? Where's the sense of acceleration when it's over in a second? Where's the sense that this is a quick car when you're already breaking the law before you've had time to effectively filter it through your brain? I don't understand how cars that are that fast can offer 
genuine on the road enjoyment. I mean, on a track it's different, but on the road you need that sense of build-up. Surely you need something that's not so quick that you can't enjoy it. They're a bit rubbish on a track as well, Sam. I'll get. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you into a, into a bit of a secret well, there. Man, the last thing I drove on a track was a Toyota Prius. So I'm not the person <laughs> to ask about that. Oh, are you doing Prius as the pronunciation? That's a bit. That's a bit Nigella-esque, isn't it? I thought we were saying Prius. Have I been saying it wrong for the last 20 years? That car's been around. Maybe I am. I don't know. The electric car movement and the hybrid movement isn't something that I'm particularly big on yet. I was, I was going to say. Well, I was going to say that. I could uh, have got it wrong. That car's been alone. The Prius, Prius, has been around for... It's got to have been around for at least 15 years now. It's 21. Good grief. Wow. And I, the reason I actually drove one on track, it was at a Toyota event earlier this year called the Parallel Pomeroy, which is effectively an auto test that runs in conjunction with the Vintage Sports Car Club, but for old Toyotas. The Pomeroy is the, the POM, as it's known. I think, isn't that the oldest motoring event in the world? It is. Oh, there you go. And for the last two years, Toyota has partnered with the VSCC to create a similar event at Silverstone, held on the same day for Toyotas. I'm glad you say Silverstone and not Silverstone. Well, that's because it is Silverstone. Yeah, I know. But... <laughs> And the first year, I did it in MR2 because right. I wanted to have some sort of hope in hell of doing decent times. The second year, for a laugh, I thought, well, it's 20 years of the Prius in the UK. Good grief. Why? 20 years? Why don't I have a laugh and celebrate the acknowledgement of this car as a modern classic? by taking something that is a hybrid designed for the environment and doing some motorsport with it. And I'll tell you something, it's it's actually, when you get behind the wheel of a Mark One Prius and you drive it like your trousers are on fire, it's actually oddly entertaining. Yeah. At some point, I'm going to have one just well, dr- for that reason. And Sam- I'm going to auto-test it. Sam, driving a fast car slow is a lot less enjoyable than driving a slow car fast. I had, in fact, you might even remember it, I had a Skoda 120L Estelle. I do remember it. That was, if memory serves, that was the NATO green one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Stella the fellow, we called it. I love that little, I love that car. I didn't keep it long. But I, one of my epic drives, because people will say, oh, what's your most memorable drive? And you think, you think, Aston Martin, Ferrari, Bentley, Skoda. <laughs> like, yeah, and, and it is there because coming back from an event on a summer's day in the east of England and eschewing highways and motorways and just sticking it on local roads, I got from Norwich to Manchester in the late afternoon and I went flat out all the way, flat out all the way. And I drive past police cars flat out because... That car had so little performance <laughs> that it could be driven everywhere flat out without really breaking. Well, obviously, you know, if you went if you went at seventy through a thirty, which technically it could do, but it kind of it took its time to get to where it was going. But it was all very enjoyable because if you look at those older Stells, I've said this before. I said to my pal who's got a lovely Porsche three five six, I said. Reminds me of my Skoda, where the engine is, the wheelbase, the sort of general weight yeah. of it, the size of it, the amount of power that the engine's making. And the, way that you, the ways that you have to correct it if you've got something wrong, I would imagine with both cars, would be very similar. It was hard to unstick it, to be honest, Sam. It was a, it was a, it was a nice day. It was a, a hot day. The roads, the roads were sticky. It's got so little torque and horse. You, you'd really have to... Not, brakes weren't bad. You'd have to get yourself... You'd have to get yourself into trouble, whereas there are a lot of cars, as I think we've been talking about, which will get you into all of the trouble that you want. You only need to go on the interweb and type in, like, cars and coffee epic fail to see a whole litany of idiots coming out of car parks across the world. And planting the foot down in something with 500 horsepower and thinking, oh, no, there's a tree. Yeah, and the second that it starts to... The second that the amount of abuse that they give in the throttle 
overcomes the ability of the onboard electronics, which, of course, they switched off because they're the next Lewis Hamilton and, you know, but whatever. They don't need them. Those they don't need it. It's controls for other people. Yeah, 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 yeah. For, it's for sissies. So they've switched it all off because they really want to put it in that tree that's about 100 yards up the road. It, it, it's when they lift off straight away as well, of course, because their first instinct is and to immediately the lift off. happens is it grips and it snaps the other way. Yeah. I always think that the Nürburgring is there as a kind of to stimulate the British used car trade. Because again, if you. The video, the one in, I think it was an E30, the people who pulled onto the Nürburgring looking forward to the lap and then binned it on the first corner. First corner. Right. If if you want to go to the Nürburgring, if you're a Brit and you want to go to the Nürburgring, I don't. I suppose you need to keep your number plates on. All. I can't help but notice that if you watch those Nürburgring videos, and it's that guy, what's he called? I'm trying to think what he's called. There's another guy, there's another guy who used to call himself Mickey Mouse, and he's on that corner on Mulholland Drive. You know, that one corner. And that guy's just gone to that corner on Mulholland Drive near Los Angeles and put his video camera on a tripod, and I think he's been making a fairly decent living for that amount of time because... There's a change of camera on that corner, and it catches so many people out. And it catches people out on sports bikes. It catches people out in classic cars. It catches people out on Harley Davidson. It catches all kinds of people out. Well, camera changes are good at that. I mean, I'm assuming, because of what you do for a living, same as me, I'm assuming you're familiar with the Millbrook Proving Ground. I am. You know the overtaking lanes on the hill, on the Alpine course? Right. When you're coming down the downhill section and you go right and you go toward where the Aston was rolling, Casino Royale, there's yes. a really nasty camber change there. And I tend to do the SMMT test day every year so I can keep my hand in with new cars as well because I don't think you can talk about old cars without knowing where we are right now. That I always find that's a really good test of a car, that corner. If a car can handle that well, it's got a decent chassis. Yeah. I wonder if anybody knows whether a car's got a decent chassis these days, the the vast majority of car buyers. I mean, back when that Skoda was new in 1978, I think it was, or was it 79, something like that, you would have known if a car had a decent chassis uh, within a week of buying it. Cars are now so... so, Not I'm going to say mollified. Nullified... And, and controlled in the way that they give information to the driver. It's almost like the car's going, no, hold on a minute, let me sort out all this stuff, and then I'll send you a, I'll send you a bit of a signal, but not much. Don't worry about all, you know, don't worry about making sure you don't spin the tyres in the wet. I'll sort all that out. Don't worry about locking the brakes. I'll sort all that out. People always used to buy cars based on how they drove. Nowadays, they buy them on how good the infotainment system is. Yeah, but why cars, wouldn't you? The car's become, an, it's, effectively, it's become a white good these days. Yeah, but why wouldn't you? I, I, a lot of the driving that I do now, particularly in the northwest of England, is on smart motorways, is on um, the really, you know, you're a Sheffield man, I'm a Manchester man. There are two excellent um, roads that connect those fine cities. The Woodhead and the Snake. The Woodhead and the Snake, which for many... I've always preferred the Woodhead, personally. Yeah, but they're both heavily cameraed and, and speed controlled now. Yeah, yeah. And, and this idea that you can get on... I'm trying to think which one's speed controlled. Is it, is it Woodhead or the Snake? I think it's the Snake. And It probably would be. The Snake's had more of an accident history on it. Yeah. It, it, more it's, opportunities to get it wrong on the Snake. Yeah, and it was, it was regularly featured in the press as Britain's most dangerous road. And you thought, well, you know, and they'd get me on the radio as a guest and say, oh, why is this? And I said, well, it isn't Britain's most dangerous road. It's just one of the most entertaining roads in England, not in Britain. Because and people get it wrong because they're trying to have fun on it. Because people go there. People and go it's, there. It's the same with the Cat and Fiddle, isn't it? Yeah. The Cat and Fiddle Road, which is, again, going out of Manchester and going towards... Um, That's down to a Buxton, isn't it? Yeah, t- through Derbyshire and then, and then you know, southwards, but over over the Pennines, and um, an entertaining and twisty and, and picturesque road that people will go to in cars and bikes to, to enjoy them, but which are now... And people complain about this, but I think I'm at an age now where... I see the point. 
where the authorities... There comes a point where the authorities go, we've got to do something about this. <laughs> because, people are getting hurt. Yeah, people are getting hurt. Because if you get it wrong, you're just... You know, you're going off the side and you're not going to stop until you get into, like, Bakewell Town Centre or, you know, whatever, until you land on the roof of the co-op. It's well, again, like... <laughs> there are so many videos on YouTube from bikers with GoPros strapped to the helmets where they've got it wrong. And then the last 30 seconds of the video looks like a kaleidoscope. Yeah, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of people not realising that you can lean a motorcycle over a lot further than they are. And they seem to, they seem to panic a bit and straighten up. And I, I, I see those. I don't make a habit of watching stuff like that. Yeah, I, I see it. I mainly see stuff like that, Sam, because people... For some reason, send it me on social media or post it on social media. And so, hey, have you seen this? I don't want to see another biker having an accident, really. It's like, you know, I've had enough myself. It's, 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 oh, what day is it? Yes, so tomorrow it's a year, it'll be a year since my last incident where I was going to, I was going to say accident, but it wasn't an accident. It wasn't accidental. There was a reason. (laughs) You know, it wasn't, you could clearly work out why I ended up lying on the floor outside Salford Cathedral. I, I, I was rolling around on the floor and I looked up and I saw the Gothic spires of Salford Cathedral where I was confirmed into the Catholic faith as a 10-year-old. I don't think I've ever been inside there since. since that was a long time ago. And I could almost hear the sort of dramatic organ music. I thought, I'm coming, Jesus! You know, cause <laughs> it, was, it wasn't good. And, and basically, again, you work out the story. Nice guy building site manager of a major building project it was raining he was in a hurry he didn't look properly and he was in he was very nice he was incredibly apologetic he accepted 100 percent liability without any any argument there were various witnesses who said he just drove in he, he people say could you not avoid him and you think when somebody doesn't see you and just drives straight at you in a car like you're not there, there's no avoiding them. I slam the brakes on. No, you can try and avoid, but inevitably it's still going to happen. So I ended up lying in the road. Well, I eventually stopped rolling around and, and going, because I had uh, five broken ribs and a cracked sternum, as I later found out. Um, I ended up sat on, the, sat on the curb. Somebody brought me a cup of tea. How very British. <laughs> I'd go further than that. It's not only how very British, it's how very northern, isn't it? Yeah, somebody brought me a cup of tea. Two I don't w- know if you find this as well. You must do. You still live up there. But I find I northern people are far friendlier than southern people. I don't know about that. Like I say, that guy who I talked about who was jogging through the roughest part of Manchester at half past three in the morning... I think if he'd met some people that he do, I don't think they would have been that friendly. There's a lot of people. Who, I think it's a bit of a myth that Northerners are, are more friendly. It can be. It can be very. People can be very brusque up here. They can be very abrupt and very judgmental. I'll tell you a quick one on that. I'm in Moscow for the Champions League final, Manchester United versus Chelsea. I know you're not a football man, but this is where my eyes glaze over. I was about well, to. I was going to say. I don't think. I know you're not a football man, and I don't think I am these days. My interest in it has waned considerably. But back then, I, I went to Moscow. I get in the lift with two guys. We're going up in the lift, and they're both they're Mancunians like me. And one of them said, you're him, aren't you? And I didn't say anything. And his mate said, but fatter. And he said, and balder. <laughs> and all three of us started laughing. <laughs> and the people who were with me were Southerners. They were both from the southeast of England. When those, when the two lads got out of the lift without saying anything else, uh, they said, I can't believe how rude those... And I said, no, it's just what we're like. It's just that's what we're like up there. And I, I, it's kind of... You know, they probably went away and said, oh, yeah, we met that Steve Berry guy. Yeah, he was all right. If I'd have said anything, like, how dare you? They would have said, yeah, yeah, he's an idiot. He's, he's right up himself or whatever. You know, he, he, you, I, I had to play along. I've met, I've met people from the States, and they've said, oh, uh, Chicago's like that. Chicago's like Manchester. People are incredibly rude, and but it's kind of their way of being friendly. <laughs> it's, not, it's not rudeness, I don't think. It's, look at it this way. When you are really, really close friends with somebody, do you ever say anything nice about them to them? Sometimes, it's, but... I, it's no. not an inherently British thing to do, is it? It's, it's not really. more British to send them up. Yeah. Oh, 
yeah, I went and to... The thing with Northern people is we instantly assume that friendship. That's where the brusqueness and what some people would assume as rudeness comes from. It's, it's an extending the hand of friendship. Exactly. The last social gathering that I went to, and this is going to come round to what we were talking about about ten minutes ago, was of a group of guys um, who I've known for a long time with a great interest in cars. They own some amazing cars between them. And their, their interest in bikes has recently been reignited. And I know these guys through motorcycles. And these guys have had some of the fastest bikes on the planet, built some of the bikes on the fastest bikes on the planet, raced some of the fastest bikes on the planet. Do you know what they've all got now, Sam? Go Don't they've all got to a man? Harley Davidson's. Because they've realised that the new generation of bikes are so fast that they, there are only two places you're going to end up, court and hospital. And I say this, I would never say to a young man, I would never say to a guy half my age who desperately wants that new hyperbike, I would never say to him, hey, mate, yeah, back in the day, oh, you want to see what I had? I had everything, Jixxers, uh, you know, I had an R1, I had a Hayabusa, I had, you know, a Blackbird. But do you know what? You really shouldn't have that bike because it's just way too fast and all it's going to get you in is trouble. That's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again, don't worry, there's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.